has survived for 25 years. And especially if you get to know us, my wife and I are extremely opposite, like player-watcher, like kind of opposite. Uh, there is, uh, my wife is all about safety, like her primary concern in making decisions are, is it safe? Alright? My primary ways of making decisions, well, if there isn't an element of risk, why bother? Right? So we just, like, we're polar opposites, and yet, over 25 years, God has faithfully knit our hearts and lives together, and uh, people ask us quite frequently, is, how, how have you made that happen? And uh, I, I think the secret is found in this word, faithfulness. Uh, I think the... Uh, the question I want to answer this morning is, how do you stay faithful to Christ? How do you remain faithful parents, faithful friends, faithful employees? How do we become, we got some base rolling here, right? Uh, how do we become people marked by faithfulness? How do we become people marked by faithfulness? Now, in order to answer this question, I think I must ask another question. And it's a question we must approach all of the fruit of the Spirit is. And here's the question. How does the gospel forge in us faithfulness? But we should ask that about every night. How does the gospel forge in us love, uh, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-care? Like, how does the gospel do that? Otherwise, the list of the fruit of the Spirit becomes just a list of moralism that we try to pursue after on our own strength and our own wisdom. And if you even have a measure of success at any of the fruit of the Spirit in and of yourself, then it defaults to pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, which is more like works of the flesh than works of the Spirit. And so, how does the Gospel forge in us faithfulness? Or another way of asking this question is, how does the Holy Spirit produce in me faithfulness? Now for those of us who love Jesus and desire to cultivate the character of Jesus, it comes by trusting that the Holy Spirit will see its work to completion. And so we acknowledge, it's like Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in us will complete it. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to apply the gospel to every facet of our lives so that our everyday lives is one marked by faithfulness. And we just simply acknowledge our deep, utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit to work that out in our lives. Now, hear me, it's not a passive dependence. I think it's a very much an active dependence. Walking, Paul defines it as walking in the Spirit, which means we press into the ordinary means of God's grace, such as spending time abiding in Christ. Uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, spending time reading the Word of God, spending the time in prayer, spending time communing with those who abide in Christ to fuel our passions and our love for Christ. And then I think at the very least it means spending the gospel as preaching, spending time preaching the gospel to ourselves. And so we'll see in this morning's passage that faithfulness begins with God, not with us. Faithfulness begins with God, not with man. Now, we see God's faithfulness written all the way across every page of Scripture. There are more than
than 60 references to God's faithfulness to us if you look in the concordance. And yet even a study of all the references to God's faithful to, uh, faithfulness to us couldn't do justice to the subject. The entire Bible is a treatise on God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness appears on every page and in every story of Scripture. But I don't have time to preach from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 this morning, so what I would really like to do is just take you to uh, this uh, gospel here, the story of Jesus encountering a blind man in Luke chapter 18. And uh, we're going to take a look at this just fascinating encounter Jesus had with a blind beggar named Barnabas. Barnabas. Uh, now, of all the stories in, in all of Scripture that demonstrates God's faithfulness, why would I pick the story that talks uh, this story to talk about faith and faithfulness? Now, here's why. And here's what you discover as we dive into this story is that it lays out a perfect ordering of faith and faithfulness. This story demonstrates in a beautiful way how the dynamics of faith and faithfulness work out. Now, faithfulness is a covenant word. Its definition is essentially an unwavering loyalty or fidelity. Now, the Bible teaches that you can't have loyalty or fidelity to God if you don't have faith in Christ. And faith in Christ is only possible because of God's faithfulness in sending Christ to die for you and making known the Christ known for us. And so, if you're taking notes, here's really the three points of this sermon this morning. Point number one is God's faithfulness to us. Point number two is our faith in Christ. And point number three, our faithfulness to God. And so when you start with, it begins with God's faithfulness to us. It's sending His Son to die for sinners such as you and I, to rescue us, to redeem us. And that results in our faith in Christ, where we say He is our only Redeemer, our Rescuer, our Healer, and we put our hope and our faith in Him. And to the degree that God works out Our faithfulness to God. Now, the beauty of the story of the blind beggar in Luke 18 is that we get all of these three dynamic parts of faith and faithfulness brought together in one powerful encounter that this blind man has with Jesus in the streets of Jericho. And so, let's look at it again this morning. Verse 35 says, As he drew, speaking of Jesus, Drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing the crowd going by. He inquired what it meant, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be quiet, to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, in this opening scene of the story, it demonstrates God's faithfulness to us. In the greater context of the story, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to face uh, betrayal and beatings and ultimately a crucifixion at the cross. And this story of the blind beggar takes place in a context which demonstrates, is already demonstrating God's faithfulness. 
faithfulness to us in Jesus' journey to the cross. And so also already we see God's faithfulness on display in this passage. If Jesus doesn't turn his gaze towards Jerusalem, we're hopeless. We have no hope. If Jesus doesn't march his way towards the city and his own certain death, sinners like you and I are done for. Now, hear this. See this in this story. The fact that Jesus is already on his way to Jerusalem is a declaration of God's faithfulness to sinners such as you and I. Now, imagine with me the streets of Jericho were crowded with people heading to Jerusalem to celebrate this uh, major festival uh, for Jewish people. Now, you have to go back to the Old Testament to really understand the dynamics of what was going on here. Closing out the book of Genesis, God's people are forced to enter into Egypt because of famine. And at first, the children of Israel and the people of Egypt had this cordial relationship. But over the course of time, that relationship changes. The Israelites find themselves in an oppression and slavery. And in God's providence, he raises up a man named Moses. Now, I'm sure you heard of Moses, uh, you know, from the movie, Let My People Go. Okay, if you're 35 and older, you'll know what that reference is. If you're 35 and younger, Google it. Um, so Moses and his brother Aaron end up in this battle of the wills against Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's response was, you want me to allow the Israelites to stop making bricks, which are being used to build monuments for my own glory, so they can go out in the desert and worship and glorify some other deity? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so God, in order to demonstrate his power, brings about upon a series of plagues, tend to be exact, upon the Egyptian nation. And the plagues go from bad to worse, culminating in the tenth and final plague as death of the firstborns. And so God goes to Moses, he goes, I'm going to bring about redemption for my people. And here's how it's going to go down. Here's how it's going to go down. I want you to take a lamb, but not just any lamb. I want you to take a lamb without blemish because you need to understand God is perfect and He demands a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And so God says, I want you to kill that lamb without blemish and I want you to smear its blood all over the doorpost. The lamb is going to act as your substitute. Judgment is coming upon the land and nobody is exempt from this judgment. It is either the blood of the lamb or the blood of a firstborn son. And so the Israelites do as God's commanded that night. God strikes down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, all of those who were not under the blood of the Lamb. Now, the Israelites are spared, and death literally passed over them. Thus the name Passover. They were ultimately redeemed from the Egyptian enslavement, and they would go on to institute in their annual calendar the celebration known as the Passover, as, uh, as uh, where death passed over because there was 
was a substitute lamb that paid the penalty of death on their behalf. Now I want you to understand, I want you to see this in the story, that nothing in the Bible is haphazard. The Old Testament story of the Passover is setting the stage for a coming Redeemer, a coming Savior, who would be that perfect, sinless lamb without blemish who would be our substitute, who would rescue us and redeem us from sin and death. Now, this brings us back into the story, into the dusty streets of Jericho. Jericho is just a rest stop on the way to Jerusalem, a place where the kids can hop off the camel and use the restroom and grab a few snacks and refuel the camels before you head on to Jerusalem. And so everybody is busy heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but everyone, see this in the story, everyone is missing the ultimate Passover lamb whose blood would be shed to atone for the sins of those who would put their faith in him. However, there's one man in the crowd that recognizes Jesus, and that man was physically blind. I mean, we see leading up into the story that Jesus is, uh, is uh, telling of his own death, but nobody sees it except for this one blind man. He recognized him. He saw something that no one else in the crowd saw. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah that everyone was looking for. Now the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. John in his gospel describes Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter tells us that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, no one sees this except the blind beggar. This man who was due to his blindness was likely was without a job, so he was most likely impoverished. He might have even been homeless. He was destitute in need of a divine intervention, which is pretty convenient, convenient because divinity steps into the scene in this moment. And the blind man hears the crowd approaching and he asks, what's going on? And some people with an earshot say, hey, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And they just see Jesus as someone being from a geographical location. Here on earth, they don't see Jesus as someone from heaven who has come to earth. And yet this blind man sees him and immediately prepares to make a fool of himself. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, let's just project ourselves in this story for a moment. If we were there, if I was there, if you were there that day, many of us would probably have looked at this guy like he has lost his ever-loving Right? Everybody looks at this smelly, disheveled, impoverished, blind guy acting a fool. Now, here's the only problem with that. Is that the joke was on everybody else except this crazy, disheveled, smelly, impoverished, homeless, blind guy. Remember the multitudes of people are passing by, Jesus on their way to celebrate the Passover. And most of them are absolutely 
to the fact that the true Passover lamb is right there in front of them. Now, I think there's a lesson for us busy, box-checking religious types. Many in this crowd having eyes, yet fail to see. Meanwhile, a guy with absolutely no sight whatsoever sees Jesus and he responds. The only way anyone would respond who sees Jesus for who he really is. He makes a complete fool out of himself and he doesn't care. He cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The people in the crowd in front of him tell him by vows which he promptly resented, responds by persistently making a fool of himself again, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now I want you to see in this moment that this blind man is putting his whole faith in Jesus Christ. The words that come out of this man's mouth are deeply theological. Son of David. Now, again, we need to flip back to the Old Testament. Remember the story of David, shepherd boy who went to king, shepherd boy who took out a giant. When David became king, God makes a covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7, and he promises David an eternal throne. In fact, it says, God says to David, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this is a messianic promise. Now, how do we know that? Well, all you have to do is flip back to Luke chapter 1 in the same gospel, and the angel Gabriel uh, foretells, uh, comes to Mary and foretells the birth of Jesus. And Gabriel says this, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, verse 33, it says that the Lord will give to you and give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's the same promise God gave to David that Gabriel is saying Jesus is going to fulfill, that there is a king that is coming, and to his kingdom there will be no end. Now, God's people have been longing for this king to show up in the scene, and the Roman oppression only heightened this longing to where people in Jesus' day were looking around and going, is the Messiah ever coming? Is our king ever coming to rescue and to redeem us? And all along, the king is right there in front of them. And even though they had eyes to see, they failed to see. Yet this one disheveled, blind, pompous guy on the road says, He's right here. He's right here. The Jesus you think is from Nazareth is really from heaven, and he's come to earth to establish his kingdom that will have no end. Now it's startling. How many of us would have looked at this man like he was crazy? The one man in the crowd who's seeing everything rightly is physically blind. How many of us would have been in such a hurry to get to the Passover celebration in Jerusalem and completely miss the Passover lamb right in front of us? 
busy doing things for God and completely missing the presence of God. The blind man on the side of the road makes a dangerous statement. You've got to remember that this isn't a time in history in which Rome was in full power, Caesar's or Caesar's king, and yet this blind guy yells out unashamedly in a crowd saying, there's a new king in town, and he's far greater than Caesar. Now, I think it's pretty crazy how God chose to make known his eternal kingship. Like, if you're coming up with a marketing campaign for a product or a cause, this is probably not it. Like, you would be sitting around a boardroom with executives and saying, okay, guys, here's how we're going to unfold this cause, this campaign, what we're going to do to have some crazy impoverished homeless blind guy announce, you know, our cause for us, right? I mean, that's insanity. I mean, that kind of marketing campaign would get you fired. And yet, that's exactly what God does. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus and I was going to announce my eternal uh, throne to the world. I would wait until the halftime of the Super Bowl game, right? Where millions and millions of people were watching, and right in the middle of Beyonce doing her thing, I just opened up the heavens and <laughs> declared that I am the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and I've come to establish my kingdom. So who cares about the second quarter, right? Like y'all even remember when the Super Bowl last year. But yet Jesus doesn't choose to reveal himself that way. He chooses to reveal himself through the most unlikely of ways. And a couple of thousand years later, Jesus is worshipped by billions and billions. Why? Because the blind guy was so great? No. It's because Jesus is quite amazing. Look at verse 40, it says that Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he asked him, what do you want from me? Now in that moment, can you imagine how Jesus' words are hitting this blind guy? Everything he ever hoped for is climaxed in this hope-filled emotion in his heart and this and he replies, the only way blind, impoverished person would. And he says, Lord, Lord, let me recover my sight. This man declares Jesus to be Lord. There's something much bigger going on than just a mere physical healing. There is a declaration of Jesus' lordship, the eternal king in the lineage of David. There is spiritual healing taking place in this moment. And it's this moment on the precipice of this guy encountering Jesus in a life-transforming way. You have to ask, uh, what was this guy most excited to see? I mean, think about it for a moment. He may have been blind since birth. This whole world was in darkness. And now in this moment, with an encounter with the divine, in divine, everything's about ready to change for him. Maybe he's excited to see the rising sun. Or maybe the beauty of the countryside. Or maybe the smiles of his own family members. 
What would you be excited to see after years and years of seeing nothing but darkness? Look with me in 40, verse 42. It says, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Now we're told that Jesus heals the man physically, and amazingly, the first thing he sees is what? The face of Jesus. Could you imagine being blind, wandering around in darkness most of your, if not all of your life, and the first thing your uh, renewed eyesight sees is the face of Jesus? Now, I can't think of a greater moment than that to see the glorious face of your Savior and healer. In fact, I have a bucket list when I get to heaven. I mean, I'm a bucket list on earth, but my bucket list in heaven is far better. And part of that bucket list is just asking, I want to track down people in heaven. You know, like Adam, what was that like pre-fall, right? Not that we want to be tasting much more than what it was like when we were redeemed and we were glorified. Or to talk to Noah, like 40 days in an ark filled with animals, what did that smell like, right? Or to Abraham or to David, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track down this guy, Barnabas, who Mark tells us his name, and say, what was it like in that moment when your sight was covered in your It's not your faith, not, it's your faith, it's not your efforts to impress. 
impress God with your accolades that saves you. There is nothing good in and of us that would redeem us. It is uh, not just any faith, but faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The acknowledgement that you are destitute without Jesus. Another reason we know that there is more than just a physical healing taking place in this moment is the phrase made well is from the Greek, which also means to save. It's the same word uh, used in uh, 10 chapters earlier, in 7, when uh, Jesus encounters the beautiful story of encountering a sinful woman, and she runs to him, and with an alabaster flask, she wets Jesus' feet, and and with tears, uh, 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 washes his feet, and dries his feet with her own hair, and she says at the end of the story, in this powerful, beautiful moment, Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Same word, your faith has made you well, your faith has saved you, when the object of your faith is Jesus, you're saved. Simultaneously, when you see Jesus as your ultimate Savior and King, you are given new eyes to see. You see how beautiful, how wondrous, how gracious Jesus truly is. You are captivated by Him and put your whole trust in Him. This new eyesight causes you to put your faith in Christ, which leads to a life of faithfulness. Now, that's where I want to land this morning. Our faithfulness to God, it begins with God's faithfulness to us, our faith in Christ, and now our faithfulness to God. Look what happens next, verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and what? Followed him, glorified God with every step and every bound of, of, of joy that he took. He, he followed Jesus Christ, glorified him to the degree that all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, here's where the virtue of faithfulness comes to bear. This guy sees God's faithfulness to him in the face of Christ, and he declares, Jesus, you're going to have to pry me from your hand. I am going to follow you every moment, every day of my life, giving glory to you. I'm going where you go. You rescued me. You're going here. Who else can I turn to? Where else can I go? You see the virtue. This is the virtue of faithfulness. Fidelity, loyalty, attaching yourself to. That's what the gospel does. This is how the gospel forges in us a Christ-like faithfulness. When you see the King, when you see Him on a rescue mission to save you, and you see the extent to which He would go to win you back, it fundamentally changes you. It deepens your affections for Him, and it reorients your life towards Him, towards a life of loyalty. And so you can put it this way, faithfulness necessarily flows from a faith-filled heart. If you truly say by Jesus, there will be this desire, this burning desire from within to walk with Jesus, to stay close to Jesus, to follow after Him in such a way that God is glorified and people around give praise not to you, but to God. 
faithfulness. That's what a new heart empowered by the Holy Spirit longs for. Now, I know it seems a bit strange with a virtue like faithfulness that we haven't spent the majority of our time talking about how to be more faithful. Now, here's why. It is soaking in the beauty of Jesus, bringing sight to the blind that compels faithfulness. That compels faithfulness. It's acknowledging that we are blind, impoverished, spiritually impoverished people in need of a divine intervention. I'll never forget as a sophomore in college when I first began to taste the sweetness of God's grace. I don't think there has been a morning that I have woken up overwhelmed that God would choose a sinner such as me. And I, I've never quite gotten over who Christ is and what he accomplished me for me on the cross. And to the degree that truth captivates my heart will be the degree that it will compel me to live a life of faithfulness. When we soak in the truth of the gospel, it has a way of drawing us in. It has a way of causing our desires to be faithful to Him. When we are captivated by the face of Christ, it reorients our lives to pursue after Him and Him alone. And so our prayer becomes Jesus. Wherever you're going, I'm going. Whether I get to be one of those who experience the power of the lions being shut, we're going to talk about in our next series, or be one of those who suffer greatly for your sake, my following you is not contingent on my circumstances or where my journey takes me. My following you is desire to simply be where you're at, wherever that takes me. That's faithfulness. And so what do we say in the light of the reality that many of us are sitting here this morning going, I struggle. I struggle with faith and faithfulness. I love the story of the Father who comes to Jesus to heal his son. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help. And I love Jesus' response. He said to him, if you can, like you know, you have no idea who you're talking to. All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now some of you are here this morning and that's your story. You are struggling with faith and faithfulness, and it, it may be in a very specific area of your life where you need a deep healing, and you want more than anything for God to heal you, but you are struggling in your faith and faithfulness, and what you need more than anything else is to cry out, I believe, I believe, help me in my unbelief. If faithfulness to God is absent in your life, if infidelity to God is a pattern, in your life, the first question you need to ask is, do I have a saving faith in Jesus Christ? Have I been made well? Have I had a Jericho Road experience? 
is cut, now is the time to cry out to Jesus. Now is the time to declare that you've been groping around in the dark. Now is the time to declare, like the beggar, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And don't worry about what people are thinking about. Some of you are sitting here and you're going, I think people think I'm a Christian, but I'm not. And I'm going to look foolish. But who cares? When you realize who Jesus is, that he's not simply from Nazareth, but he is the son of David, the eternal king, you will risk making a fool out of yourself for him. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, would shine in your hearts to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that he would deliver you from the domain of darkness and transform you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, that you would know Jesus and his love for you. My prayer is that he would call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if you're a Christian who struggles with faith, who wavers in faithfulness, and that's all of us, by the way, daily we are faced with opportunities to believe or disbelieve God. For the Christian, it goes back to meditating on and soaking in the wonder of God's faithfulness to us. Doing so strengthens our faith and produces the harvest of faithfulness in our lives. So if your faith and your faithfulness is all over the map this morning, first thing you can do is stop looking at you. Stop looking at you. Stop beating yourself up and start looking at God and His faithfulness to you. Start looking at the face of Christ. Start looking at the Son of David who came to rescue you and redeem you from the slavery of sin and death. Start looking at the traces of God's faithfulness all over your life. Like I look back and even though I first tasted of God's grace as a sophomore in college, I can trace back God's pursuit of me from a child. Like His faithfulness precedes my faith in Him. Get an eyeful of God's goodness, grace, and glory. That's an exercise you can actually participate in. Getting an eyeful of Jesus. Because you now, by God's grace, have eyes to see. So don't waste your God-given vision. Don't waste your God-given vision. Use what you've been given to fix your gaze on Jesus, just like he fixed his gaze on Jerusalem for you. Be captivated by the cross and what he accomplished for you on it. To the degree that you are captivated by the cross will be the degree that to live a life of faithfulness. Will you stand with me? Jesus, this morning, we stand in the very presence of the Passover lamb. The one who came to give his life to ransom, to rescue, to redeem sinners such as us. God, I pray if there is one here that has never encountered you like the blind man encountered you in the road there in Jericho, that they would in faith cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And that 
Life be captivated by that simple gospel truth. 